Hi friends, this is Shadima, also known as the Type A Hippie, and this is the Type A Hippie Podcast, Cheekast episode 42. And I am on with a really great one. Uh, I'm on with Kelly McEvers. You may have heard about her um, through this little organization called NPR, and I sometimes kind of just put my dreams out in the universe and I toss it out there and see what sticks. And so I reached out to Kelly and she responded in social media and now we're here. So welcome to my podcast, Kelly. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I'm so glad that you're here. Um, I was exposed to some of your work. So you are a podcaster yourself or a host of several different podcasts. So I'll get to that in a minute. Before that, though, introduce yourself to anyone who may not know who you are, which is odd, but. <laughs> a lot of people out there who are radio nerds, but I guess they wouldn't be listening to a podcast. That's yeah. true. Uh, my name's Kelly, and I host a podcast called Embedded. Uh, it's, a, it's an NPR podcast uh, where we take a story from the news and go deep. That's the sort of tagline. Um, I also, um, my side hustle <laughs> is uh, I am one of the hosts of All Things Considered, NPR's afternoon news program, which is heard on stations all over the country. Um, and before that, I was a Middle East correspondent for NPR for a bunch of years, and I did Iraq and Syria and Yemen and stuff like that. Um, and yeah, I live in Los Angeles. I'm just learning how to surf. I'm still really bad at it. That's awesome. I actually lived in California for three months last summer because I had lived in Las Vegas for almost 10 years, and I got accepted to a pre-med post-bac program in L.A., and mm -hmm. so I moved there, and I love California, and then now I'm back in cold-ass Michigan, so there's that, but <laughs> I didn't learn how to surf, but I definitely was totally game to go to the beach and walk on the sand and keep my feet in the water. So I hear okay. you. So, okay. So I, so embedded is how I kind of got connected to you. And I was telling Kelly on the pre-call that I listened to the season. I don't know how many episodes, maybe 12 to 16 episodes, um, really quickly, like over the course of several days. And I was really struck by how, how do I, I mean, de definitely embedded you got with the people that were the subjects or the people whom you were interacting with and, you know, hearing their stories, but it was just, there was this humanity about you and it wasn't just that you were kind of reporting something, you were really getting in deep with the people and it seemed as if the story shifted you slightly um and so one that kind of rocked me was the school episode and essentially you went to a school and they this school was closing in somewhere let me just Coast. clarify yeah let me clarify though it wasn't me who went there it was um yes wonderful. it was a guy right no it was two reporters actually okay. it was um okay. Shireen Marisol Moraji, who you should also interview because she's amazing. Okay. Um, and she's from our Code Switch podcast, and she does. she's an amazing reporter and host. 
um, and a producer named Chris Bendereff, who's the producer on Embedded. Um, and they spent a bunch of time in this this part, um, this town in Pennsylvania, um, where the school was closing. But yeah, it was on my podcast, and I was a big part of editing and producing that that episode. So I just want to be give credit where credit is due. Thank you. Yes, you're absolutely right. And now it's coming to me. The one you did the episode though with um, about suicide, correct? That was a colleague of mine named Rebecca. <laughs> Rebecca for sure. That was an amazing episode too. That was Again, a really good one. I had a really big hand in shaping and you know um, bringing that one to life. But Rebecca Hersher is the one. She spent four months in Greenland, okay. Okay. Um, talking to native people and um, looking into you know a thing, a phenomenon we've seen in, in several different places, um, among, and especially among natives, of high rates of suicide, um, and just kind of trying to look at what happened and and why it's happening and what can be done. Um, it's a really sensitive subject because, sure. you know, we know from the research that if you report on suicide in a certain way, you can actually, clusters of suicides have happened. So you have to be super careful. There's like really serious guidelines to how we should be reporting on suicide. So that was something we like had to take great care with. It was actually a really hard um episode to do because you know there's a way there's a responsible way to talk about suicide and there's a not responsible way to talk about suicide and sure. but you still want to be able to tell a story you know people want to know certain details and so that was yeah we had to we had to tiptoe pretty carefully but um I think it was still a really compelling story yeah no it absolutely was a compelling story and so when I listened to that episode that is one of the reasons I decided to reach out because I wanted to hear, you know, how this work that you're doing along with colleagues. And so I'm glad that you are <laughs> giving them a shout out because that's incredibly important. You know, the work is not always easy. Um, yeah. There's a lot of effort, especially when you're talking to real people that are being affected by what's going on around them. And so yeah. how working on this program the last season, how that has shifted some of your own perspective. In so many ways. And it's funny, uh, people it's, I like the way you put it. You're like, you know, this reporting clearly changes you. And I, when you said that, I was like, Oh man, I wouldn't do this work if it didn't change me a little each time. Sure. I, and I don't, I don't know that I know that I don't go in being like, I can't wait to be different at the end of this process, but like, but it always happens, you know, and it goes back, I swear to God, to like the first day I ever tried to be a journalist, which was in college. And I found out from a friend that you could just like go try out to work at the, we, we had a really good paper. I went to University of Illinois um, at Urbana-Champaign and we had this great newspaper and it was independent of the university. So it, it made its own money. It was part of a company that was the... Um, the radio station and the yearbook. And so it, it was the morning newspaper in the community. And if you got like, you could try out and if you got a job, you made money and I needed money. And, um, I just remember the very first day getting some lame assignment and like, I took it way too seriously. Like I spent like two days, like it was a little story about like a housing shortage or a change in section eight housing rules mm -hmm. in the community. And I like spent the night in the 
I wanted to like spend the night in a, in a homeless shelter or whatever. Um, so I way over, went way overboard. But I remember at the end of those two days being like, oh my God, like I could do, there, like somebody would pay me to go out into the world, meet new people, learn stuff, and then like tell everybody what I learned. Sure. Like that's, that's the job I want to do for the rest of my life. And that was in 1992. And I still feel that way. Like I still feel that way every, it's super dorky and probably like really, really naive. But um, I still feel that way every single time I go out to do something. It's like, oh my, I'm, this is, this is, I'm the luckiest person in the world because I get to go out and learn a bunch of stuff. It's like I'm in the school of life. And so whatever I'm curious about and whatever my colleagues are curious about, whatever we sort of collectively are curious about, we go follow our noses until we get to some point where, yeah, we've learned something. We've changed. Something has happened. And then that something is something we can share with other people in the hopes that, you know, they'll have some feelings and experiences too. They might not have the same ones as us. Right. Um, I think the pretty, the biggest example is probably um, the work we did on the opioid crisis. Oh my goodness. Yes. Um, because I think even I thought I was so smart about that stuff. You know what I mean? Like I was like, I, I had known people with opioid addictions in the past, like, different friends at different times of my life. Like I had sure. lived through many different experiences with people and drugs. Let me just say that. And <laughs> like, yeah. I thought I knew stuff and I even then learned stuff. Like I just, you know, it took like really being there and sitting with people and sitting in their lives for a while to kind of totally understand or even just like begin to understand, let's say what this thing can do to you. And how it can change you. And like the big, I think the, you know, I don't think it'd be giving away too much because I think it's an interesting story to listen to. But for me, the big change was like, you know, there's this sense in America of just like, just quit. Just go to a 12-step program yeah. and pull yourself up by your bootstraps and just get better. Yeah. You do it, you know. Don't be weak. Don't be a loser. Just quit. Fix it. And and I don't think I, I had extreme thoughts like that, but I think I didn't think they were totally crazy. Right. Like, oh, come on, you can do it. Just quit. And I just was didn't realize how totally wrong I was about that until I spent a bunch of time with people and read the research and talked to the experts and, like, talked to a lot of the experts, you know, about, like, how opioids actually change our brain chemistry. Yeah. No, yeah. like you know it's different from alcohol in a bunch of kind of key ways like and just what it does to you the dangers of um overdose after you've been through one of these 12-step programs to go clean you know and how much um religion is behind you know a lot of these decisions and drug courts so i just feel like there was a whole bunch more stuff to be learned and i didn't even know that going in you know of course my my instinct is just go in go in, go as deep in as you can and just see what happens. And then, but yeah, I, there was a sort of big learning curve. Um, for me personally on that story. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. That was a really good one. Um, I actually listened to all of them backwards. So I started mm. with the last episode and I listened up until I think episode eight or something where it says we found joy. And I was like, Oh no, I can't listen to this first. So then I went to the 
the beginning, and then I listened to them in order from there, and then I ended up in the middle. I think the last episode I listened to was, I think you all were in Colombia. Someone was in Colombia with the bus, the buses. El Salvador, yeah. El Salvador, exactly. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you're right about the opioid addiction, um, like the crisis that we're experiencing. That is not dissimilar than you know, what was happening in the 70s and 80s in terms of, like, the drug crisis then um, mm. and just how much more information we have today mm. than we did before because we were really big on criminalization um, yeah. of this disease then and some people are still affected by it and now by what would the course of action we took in the 70s and 80s and 90s. And, um, you know, when you were talking to all of these people, so one of the things about this particular podcast is I do talk about three particular issues, and substance use disorder or alcoholism and addiction is one of them. Okay. Um, sexual assault, domestic violence is the second, and then... The third is mental illness because each of these three buckets, if you will, um, there's significant stigma attached to them. And um, that is one of the things that I noticed with um, Joy that you were talking about. I don't want to ruin it for anyone, but Joy's story is really poignant and it's not dissimilar from other people that have struggled with addiction or alcoholism in that they find that they're where they are today. And if you would ask them two years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, they would never have dreamed that they would be where they are today. Um, In terms of- Like you you sit down and plan it, right? Nobody's- Exactly, no one says, you know what? Like, (laughs) sell my stuff, estrange my family, you know. Right, and lose everything or give it all away, right? and end up uh, being connected with the criminal justice system. Like, yeah, no one says that. And yet, so many people and people that are not your typical, you know, quote unquote, I'm using air quotes here, like alcoholic living under the bridge with a trench coat and a 40 and a brown paper bag, or, you know, someone that's on the side of the road panhandling or whatever. Like, that's not what the face of addiction is, um, anymore. And a lot of people are hidden in plain sight. Um, you don't even know until you talk to them, which is part of the reason I'm doing what I do so that people can hear a real person, you know, sharing about their lives. Right. And that's what, that's what you've done on, uh, embedded. So question for you, what do you do? Or no, let me ask you this, because were you in Waco, Texas? Yes, I was one of the people. <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> I did report that story with the biker gangs. Yeah. With the biker gangs. That was a really interesting one. Mm-hmm. What was the most surprising thing <laughs> about that one? Because it was oh. so chaotic. Like it was so just over the top. I think I was kind of surprised at how... I guess I'm always just naively surprised, but like I was kind of surprised at how closed they were and how like how hard it was mm. at where we got with them. Sure. Like 
And that was only with one side. You know, the other side was basically just like, no. nope. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think that surprised me because in some ways it's kind of like, really? Come on. You know, like, why do you have to be so secretive? You've got nothing to hide if you're not committing any crimes. And what's right. the big deal? Um, but I think it's like anything else. It's all part of this persona. It's so male, obviously. Mm-hmm. And it's like this outlaw persona. Um, I think that, you know, keeping it secret and keeping certain people out, I think that just helps perpetuate the the story and the myth, you know. And so in some ways, when I really sat and thought about it, I wasn't all that surprised. Um, I was real. I mean, I was pretty surprised at the le- at, at like how violent that incident got. It was like, yeah, these are rough and tumble dudes who like will beat each other up with chains and stuff. But like. You know, people getting like executed in, you know, shot in the head like that was yeah. felt like another level of stuff. Um, I was surprised by uh, the level of like conspiracy theory. There was a lot of conspiracy theory going on. It was like that the whole thing was actually set up by the cops. Um, that was interesting. And you know what? I was surprised by how much fun I had. Like I had a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> I guess I shouldn't have been surprised by that, but like, (laughs) um, because I grew up in like a small, uh, you know, pretty rural town, a couple of them. And, uh, I think I sometimes forget like how, you know, much I miss that in some ways. And so like going to Texas and just like chilling in bars with a bunch of rowdy dudes listening to like bad classic rock, like was super fun. And, Um, I think, yeah, uh, I think it was like almost too much fun probably for me. Yeah. So, and how much, because we always come with our identity and multiple identities, Totally. how much of your own identity, whatever that means to you, um, allowed you to get at least somewhat, um, to start a relationship, you know, albeit a professional relationship and kind of getting embedded with one of the groups, the Cossacks. I mean, it's a super great question. Like, obviously, like, the fact that I used to ride motorcycles in a previous life and, like, lived not totally dissimilarly from them is, like, something I'm not going to like oversell, but like, I'm just going to be honest about who I am with people, you know what I mean? But you know, um, and like where I come from and stuff like might be more relevant in certain circumstances than it is in others. Let's just say, um, but at the same time, I think generally speaking, like my, my identity is, you know, lady in her mid white lady in her mid forties who's like super curious about the world. You know, I mean that yeah. that is that is it. That's who I am. That's what it's all about. You know, people ask me like, why are you here? I'm like, because I want to know everything about you. And that is totally and completely and utterly true. Like it's not you know what I mean? Like I would sit here and listen to you all day long. Yeah. Um, and that's really more of it than anything, I think, when it comes to like how I approach people. Um, you know, I'm always, I always identify like who I work for and stuff like that. You know, like, you know, like when Tom and I walked up to the bandito bar in Texas and they were like, like, who are you? You know, like, 
we're from it, you know, like we have to say, like we're from NPR, you know. And they right. were just like, are you kidding me? You know, that was funny. I mean, I don't even know if they knew what NPR was, but like totally. it was definitely like not a moment of congruity. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, it was it was funny because someone was. I think this was the part where someone was like they were trying to shush the crowd, right? Weren't they doing? Oh, no, that was, was a big day when okay. the lady. Yeah. The, yes. <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah, we were recording there, and that was. You know, that was part of an agreement. We made it clear that we were going to be doing it. Um, It wasn't, you know, popular with everybody, but, like, we had cleared it with the right people. You know, that's, like, that's when you're, like, you've got to be super, like, aware of, like, whatever social hierarchy is going on. And you can just tell, like, that guy's giving us a bad look and he looks like he's somebody important. Let's go talk to him and, like, you know, tell him who we are and, like, or that guy's giving us a bad look and, you know tough like the right people have told us we can be here I have confidence that we can be here yeah that's what we want you know if somebody wants to tell me to come turn off this microphone they can tell me to turn off the microphone but you know part of it too is just like you know part it's this really interesting dance of being like of being like confident enough to be like no no it's okay we have a right to be here but also being respectful enough to say you know if you don't want this thing to be recording like you have the power to tell me to stop. Yeah. Well, and that's a great question. So I found this article, and you're probably aware of it. Um, Have you seen, it was in the Times, some high school journalists landed a huge scoop, right, and their principal resigned as a result? Yeah, I actually interviewed one of them for All Things Cute. They were, yeah, they were pretty, they were so, she was so serious and so, like, just you know professional and great that I love that 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 sort of thing well this time of year always makes me a little bit misty-eyed um because you know people are graduating and kind of fulfilling a dream and moving forward in their lives but when I think about that I think about how badass is that to be able to you know just do like do what you are doing and not be intimidated to not bring to light what you found, right? And so I think about what you just said about making the right connections because I feel like for anyone to be successful on this planet, that is incredibly important relationship building and knowing, having a great sense of who you are. And so how has that evolved from when you first got that job at U of I and... (laughs) who you are today in your mid forties, probably I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I know that I'm not too much younger and I care less about a lot Oh yeah, <laughs> right? I, that I did in my twenties. And, um, someone was asking my question. I was like, I don't really care what they think. And he yeah. just looked at me and I was like, I don't mean it like that. I just, they're not my inner circle. So I'm not really that concerned with <laughs> what they think about me. And, you know, you, but, like, I care about what my sister thinks, right? So, um... It is amazing how that changes. Um, I, as a reporter, I mean, it's one thing in your personal life, but... And even in my professional life, like, I'm a totally different animal. Like, just when, in terms of, like, how I talk to bosses and, like, how I, you know, know how to, like, 
you have to ask if you want something you ask for it or you or you tell people that you you know like like those are things that like I mean it took decades to do to figure out how to do especially as a woman you know just ridiculous things that I wish I had known when I was 20 but as a reporter it's kind of funny I'm still almost exactly the same person and I don't know why that is like I always say like one of these days I'm going to stop being that person I'll probably have to quit but um I've st- always had uh, been okay at just like talking to strangers. Mm-hmm. So the thing that's grown over the years is what to do with that. Yeah. You know, it's like what to make of that conversation and whether that, you know, how to take that and then mold it into something, whether it's a piece of writing, a piece of radio or what. Um, and that's the thing you get better and better at over time. And it changes then. Once you get better at making the thing, it changes how you, I think it changes a little how you report the thing, but um, that part of it's never, has always been the same for me. It's just like walking up to someone who I don't know and just because I'm just genuinely curious about them um, and talking to them, that's, that's the fun and easy part. It's like the what do you do next part that's grown and changed over the years. You know, crafting a long piece of writing about something that actually happened or crafting a long piece of radio, it's no joke. I mean, structure and and narrative and like when to reveal certain things and how things spin out and that stuff's hard. You know, it can really be a challenge because you want, especially nowadays, I think with podcasts, you want people to keep listening. Right. You want to give them a reason to keep listening. You want to have questions. (laughs) You want them to have questions in their head that they want to answer. And so they're going to keep listening. And so there's a bunch of different ways to do that. And so it's part of it's just sort of fun because it's a new um, it's a new format. And we've had long form radio before, but like this is really different. And um, also you get to be yourself more in podcasts, which is so nice. Yeah, You get to just, like be a person. And that's so lovely. But then if the question is like how much of you really needs to be in there and how much do you have to calibrate that? And that's all really fascinating too. Um, so yeah, so that's always growing and developing. And I feel like I don't even, I'm nowhere even close to where I would want to be like on that. I feel like I could learn about that until the day I die about how to make the final product. Yeah. No, it's, it's definitely true. I mean, I just started this podcast actually on Thanksgiving and a couple friends had said you should start a podcast and the first time it was mentioned I was in tears because there was stuff going on clearly and I was like you've lost your mind I believe and then a month later another friend he said the same thing and I was like well I'm making progress because I'm not weeping and I really didn't feel like there was a need to add another podcast to the mix of thousands of podcasts just to say I had one. And so after the election, things were shifting and changing. And then I had more to say. And so I started it on Thanksgiving Day and I recorded 16 episodes um, through the end of the year. So in that last six weeks of the year, through New Year's Eve, um, I was, you know, interviewing people and, and many of them were just me in the beginning. Uh, And then, you know, this year it's been like, you know, a lot more interviews, but it's, you're absolutely right about that because you kind of add a little of yourself because that is part of the personality, but it can't be all of it because then 
you would just talk and you wouldn't <laughs> be talking with another person. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just like when it, so I have a, um, a lovely, amazing life coach and she shared with me some feedback about myself. And so one, like my assignment was to kind of listen to myself in conversation with others as a third party. So I would be engaged in the conversation, but I'd almost be like, I was on my own shoulder, you know, listening, like, am I talking too much? Am I not talking enough? You know, and kind of moderating, but not being fake or false or like non-transparent, but just being mindful and present. And that was really, um, that has been helpful as I talk with people and it's being recorded because like, Anyone can have a conversation, but when it's recorded and then you put it out there, it's like, uh, and it's not even like, I mean, it's doing well enough, right? This podcast, but it's not like a nationally recognized or internationally recognized podcast where people are tons and, you know, tens and thousands of people are listening to it. At least not yet. It can get there. It can get there. It's all good. Um, question for you. Are you an introvert or an extrovert? Extrovert, for sure. Okay. Very interesting. And besides surfing, how do you self-care? Because you Uh, have been, we haven't even gotten to some of the the darker days. Yeah. Which will pop over onto that side. But how do you self-care? Surfing's new. Um, I live in Southern California. I do yoga. I ocean swim. I surf. I ride my bike to work. Like, I work in an amazing place. I work at NPR West, which is our headquarters in Los Angeles, actually technically Culver City. Um, I work with amazing humans who are, have basically, have totally and completely become my family. Um, I swear they are my self-care. Like, they're just so special. I can't tell you how many days I'll just like walk through the big newsroom and look around and be like, ah, I'm so lucky. They're so talented and diverse and amazing and creative and collaborative and supportive and loving and wonderful. Like it's, it's the most important thing. I also have amazing friends um, and I really put a premium on spending time with friends, just like taking a break from all the crazy and just like making food I cook a lot and just like having people come over and eat the food and talk um, those are my those are the ways yeah. yeah that's a good one what's your favorite thing to make oh my god I just everything like I've lived a bunch of different places so mm-hmm. I always from where I live but um recently yeah I make everything but this last um weekend I made a bunch of like Syrian Lebanese food and that oh, was nice. like my happy place. Yeah, it was really good. Yeah, that's well. times. Totally, and I feel like food and music mm-hmm. have just special places because they take you places, um, mm-hmm. and you get to do it. There's an opportunity to do it in community, right? So, like having people that you love around the table, eating food that you love that's nourishing, and the food is likely nourishing hopefully it's nourishing but the company and the community um kind of fills that as well so that's awesome okay so you were talking about syria and i know from what i've read about you that um 
you visit. That's one of the places that you visited. Yeah. Correct. So what were you doing? I know what you were doing, but. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was based in Baghdad for NPR. It was my, I had been freelance for a bunch of years and they finally asked me to join the staff, which was my dream. And uh, they were like, okay, you can start in Baghdad. And uh, that was kind of like the start. Believe it or not, that was like the starter place. It was like where you get your, you just where you earn your stripes and then you right. kind of go there. And I was supposed to be there. I joined in 2010 and I was going to be there for a couple of years. I'd, 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 I did a six month contract and then I think I got another contract for like two years. So I was supposed to be there for a while. And then the Arab Spring happened in late, late, late 2010, of course, with um, uh, Bouazizi set himself on fire in Tunisia and then the Tunisian protests and then the ouster of Ben Ali. And then, um, you know, the protests that just basically just started blowing up everywhere. Yemen, Egypt, Libya, Bahrain, Syria. And like at one point, like it was like we literally didn't have enough people to cover them. There were just so many and I was sitting there in Baghdad. I was the lowest man on the totem pole on the foreign desk. My job was to just sit and babysit Baghdad while all my colleagues were doing all the other stories. But I was like, put me in, coach. Put me in, coach. Like, please, 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 please let me go. And so finally, like, he's like, no, you have to stay in Baghdad. But then finally, he's like, yeah, you got to go. And I started doing um, Bahrain and Yemen. I always joke that I did the Arab Springs that didn't work. But in the end, I guess um, almost all of them didn't work. But at the time, you know, some of them worked. Libya seemed to work and Egypt seemed to work and Yemen, uh, not really. But anyway, so like I was covering all the ones that were like super problematic. So, yeah, there were all the Arab Springs that at the time, you know, quote unquote, worked like Egypt. Um, the dictator stepped down. Tunisia, obviously, the dictator left. Libya, it seemed like things were going to be good until they kind of weren't. Um, but there were the countries where things were bad from the start. Bahrain, you know, they had 30 days of this massive protest movement, but then the government swooped in and cracked down brutally, brutally on the people. Same thing in Syria, day one, you know, first day of protest. Protesters are shot, unarmed protesters are shot in the streets. And so those are the ones I got to cover. <laughs> like, those are the ones I got sent to. Um, and, uh, you know, I would, and then I started to go to Yemen too, when it looked like Yemen you know, the protesters held the streets for months and months and months. And then finally there was an assassination attempt on their president and he left the country for a while. And then he eventually slowly stepped down. And of course, everything is totally devolved now since then into a civil war. But there was moments when, you know, things looked promising there. But so those are the ones I covered, Yemen, Bahrain and Syria primarily. And then I still kind of had to cover Iraq. Mm. Um, and so at one point, my family, we moved to Syria, to, to, sorry, to Beirut because um, it's the closest to Syria. That was obviously going to be a big story. I got in on one official visa to Syria, one and only one. And wow. halfway through, they pretty much kicked me out because uh, they didn't like me. And um, so the only way to go to Syria, if you weren't getting an official visa, and basically, once you were kind of on their bad list, like you're not going to get another official visa again. And so what a lot of news organizations would do would have would be to have a clean team and a dirty team. Sure. And so I was on the dirty team. Like I would then sneak into Syria like a bunch of journalists did. You'd fly to Istanbul and then you'd fly to another Turkish border town. And then you would either walk or take a boat or climb a mountain over into Syria. And the Turks would just sort of turn a blind eye or you'd have to pay a bribe. One time I crossed over, they stole the Turkish guards, like 
made this whole dramatic ruse, you know, like, oh, we have to search your bag. They basically stole my iPhone, you know, it was like as a bribe, you know, to let me over the border and stuff. Um, And then once you got into Syria, you were just like in quote unquote free Syria, which is, you know, areas where the rebels had kicked out government forces. And so they wanted journalists in to tell their story. Um, And so I did that several times um, over the course of a couple of years. So that's how I was in Syria. Um, Mostly the rebel north. The last time I went was in the spring of 2013. Um, Journalists had already been kidnapped by that point and were already being held. Jim Foley and Peter Peter Kassig hadn't been kidnapped yet because I knew him. Um, but some other people had already been taken and that, tri- that trip in spring 2013 was kind of like, I knew at the time we were, you know, the Islamists, we were starting to hear more about I- Islamists who would later be called ISIS, mm. um, knew that Jim Foley had been taken. We weren't sure by whom, you know, it was starting to feel like this is no longer a thing we're going to be able to do. And sure enough, that was my last trip in. It was just like, it's not safe anymore. Right. Um, and, you know, we know what happened to Jim yeah. and others. Uh, so it was a hard thing to not do. It was very hard to stop being able to go in and tell people's story because we knew that, you know, those stories being told from a distance would have a different impact. And it did. Um, I mean, other journalists went in and risked a lot to tell stories, but fewer and fewer went in and fewer go in now, you know. And it's a shame. It's definitely true um, because it's it's easier for those of us that are not doing it right to sit with our chai tea latte and listen <laughs> to something and and it's there's no shame you know I'm not I'm not yeah. throwing shade um, because we're all called to do something different in this yeah. one life that we have to lead and and at the same time it is really imp- important and powerful to hear the stories of people. Um, I often say, um, so my parents were born and raised in Nigeria, and so a lot of times our family in Nigeria thinks America is so, so great, and there are great things about this country. Please hear me, you know, hear me and hear my heart, friends, like, (laughs) and at the same time, a lot of times people here in this country say this is the best, right, because they've never been anywhere else, and the people that like it goes both ways right (laughs) because there's nothing to you know with what are you comparing um you know and to hear someone or to hear someone's story from across the globe and me relate to it even if I don't relate to the entire experience but relating Mm -hmm. to feelings or relating to some of it um I grow as a human and I tend to have a little bit more compassion, a little bit more empathy, um, and get to say me too, you know, or someone else says me too. And so that's why I agree. It is, it's sad. And I understand why there has been a decline in that because I mean, your people want you to be safe (laughs) and secure as well, even though you are, you know, chasing your passions and yeah. doing what sets your soul on fire. And that said, 
you know, <laughs> there are plenty of people, you know, plenty of journalists that have people that want them to be safe and secure. So before we wrap up, tell yeah. me about the night that you spent um, in the tent city. Oh, in Yemen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, one of the most, I, uh, it's another story that's so lost right now because it's a place that it's pretty dangerous. It's really difficult to go to. Yeah. Been at war for a while. Um, and it's so frustrating. Uh, honestly, if I could go anywhere right in the world right now, I'd go to Iraq, Yemen, and Syria. Wow. And I could still go to Iraq. Um, but, uh, you know, Yemen rose up like soon after it was, you know, January 2011. So, like, very early in the Arab Spring. Um, uh, God, I'm why can I? I just totally blanked on her name. Uh, Twakul Karman. Twakul Karman. She was, um, Twakul. Uh, she ended up later winning, uh, sharing the Nobel Peace Prize. Um, and, uh, she was one of the protest leaders in Yemen. And the thing that they did in Yemen that was different than some other places is they just like held the street. Like, um, some of the protests, like in Cairo, you know, it was Tahrir Square. So it was this huge, huge, huge square. Everyone just occupied the square. Well, and then it didn't take long before the dictator stepped down. So then everybody went home. Bahrain, it was the same thing. It was called Pearl, this big roundabout. It was 30 days. And then the government came in and cracked down on the whole thing, set camps on fire, you know, bad. And everybody went home. In Yemen, it wasn't a square so much as like these long stretches of street. Um, and so, and it was like seven months, like almost a year. Some people stayed longer than a year where they just like held the street. They just lived in tents and like, that's where they lived. They were just like, we are not going home until something changes. And there was just something so incredible about that. The tent city had a life of its own. It was amazing. I was there during Ramadan. And so, wow. you know, no, no one eats until after the sun goes down. Right. And so... That night, Twakul, I mean, she herself was the mother, I think the mother of three kids, if I'm not mistaken, I might be wrong. Her own mother was like cooking all the food and bringing it down to the tent for everyone to break the fast. You know, all the older women, um, you know, found themselves with like a lot of work to do because the, you know, the 30 year olds were like holding this, holding the street. And so like at night in Ramadan, it was like the most amazing scene where every, you know, the sun goes down, everyone breaks the fast. The whole tent city is just having this massive, massive community meal together. You know what I mean? And it was just, it was incredible. It was incredible to just, every tent was like, you know, a place of study. You could learn first aid. You could learn, you could go and discuss political theory. Like, you know, I think people think of Yemen as this totally backward place. And it was just like this center of like intellectual and political activity. Like I had never seen, I mean, a part of like, you know what I love my job obviously is going to new places and meeting new people but like also just like imagining like nobody in America ever does this you know right. like you know seeing the way people do things well you know like seeing examples of like how to live you know that was just to me like mind-blowing I remember coming back after doing a bunch of the Arab Spring and just happening to walk through an Occupy protest in New York City and being like okay all right here we go you know, because it was it had been a long time since I'd seen anything like that in America, you know, and I there was definitely a contagion um, going on at that time with Occupy and Arab Spring and stuff. It was something something really special. I mean, I think the the narrative now is like, well, it didn't work. 
you know, um, didn't work in the Arab world, didn't work in the U.S. And, ah, you know, I don't know if I want to close the book on, like, public protests and say that whether it's good or bad. But I know that those nights in Yemen were just some of the most incredible and amazing nights. It just there's this sense of like no matter what the elites do, there's like 10 to 1 30 year olds who are getting better and smarter at life than the elites are. And someday they will take over. You know, there's just something like inherently reassuring about it as, as messy as Yemen has gotten since then. You know, I still think back and I think like all those 30 year olds did not go away. I mean, they're like 35 now, but there's a bunch of 25 year olds right. you know, who are just like just as awesome and who are going to do awesome stuff. Yeah. Well, and I agree with you. I, I feel like people want to feel connected and want to feel like whatever they're doing matters a lot of times. And so whatever that looks like, whether it's like actually marching in the streets or writing a letter or sending a postcard or doing something, um, if you feel compelled to do something, then you're going to do something. And even if it looks in the moment like it's not working, I believe there's a soul shift that happens. And so it is working, you know, Um, Mm -hmm. it's just kind of how you choose to look at it, like our perspective on whatever it is. Um, It's interesting that you talked about in terms of self-care, food and community, you know, and then these tents is like food and community and dialogue, right? And um, I... Mm -hmm other like people you don't agree with like yeah. sit in the street with them like getting out of your house something pretty amazing about that yeah it's it is really powerful um that was one of the things um i loved the church i attended um or and it's really actually the last church i've attended um for a multitude of reasons but in las vegas it's called hope church and one of the things that I remember Pastor Vance saying was for us to do that, you know, he's like, seek out someone that you don't know, or someone that you know, you don't agree with on certain issues, and share a meal with them break bread. Um, It will be interesting to see what you learn. Both about the other person and about yourself, you know, because I know that I'm so glad that some of my views have changed over the years. Like who I was 20 years ago is not who I am today. And I'm sure the same is true for you or even 10 or even a year ago. You know, there have been changes and a lot of it does happen around community. Because when I talk and I'm transparent and open to hearing some feedback from, you know, I have to consider the source of where I'm getting feedback. Um, Sure. But if I'm open to it from people who are actually invested in my life and closed mouth friends, it's amazing the transformation that can happen. Yep. So, cool. Well, I won't keep you very much longer. Thank you so much, Kelly. I appreciate you coming on the Cheekast. It's awesome to have you. It's good talking to you. Um, So I'm going to read a couple of stories. I've got three stories lined up and then we will close in the usual manner. So I can't tell who this person is, but you can definitely see uh, a scar or actually a kind of newish wound on their wrist. And 
The person saying I had 40 acres and a new home out in California. I was working as a stonemason. I could bring in $6,000 cash some weeks. Then one night I was walking home and someone tried to kill me. My brain was damaged. I lost my sense of smell, my sense of taste, most of my hearing, and now I can barely stand without getting dizzy. I must have fallen and cracked my head open 30 times since then. Everything I knew has been washed out into the water. I've tried to commit suicide several times. And they also have a cup with money in it. So it looks like they're probably asking for money on the street. Yeah. So this appears to be a little girl with daisies around um, their hair and some flowers on the concrete wearing a dress asked what do you want to be when you grow up a mom what's going to be the hardest part about being a mom bath time so they must know (laughs) they they might be a problem child just saying (laughs) and then the last one we'll read today is um appears to be two gentlemen um We met 48 years ago at a Halloween party. We were the only two not wearing costumes. That's funny. Because I'm not a big Halloween costume person either. So that might have been me. So, all right, friends. Thanks so much for listening. Um, Thank you, as usual, for your support, your love and light. And write a review, subscribe to the podcast, and tell a friend. So... I honor the place within you where the entire universe resides. I honor the place within you of love, of light, of truth, of peace. I honor the place within you where when you are in that place in you, and I am in that place in me, there is only one of us. Have a gratitude-filled day. My name is Chidima, also known as the Type A Hippie, and this is the Type A Hippie Podcast, Cheek episode 42. Thanks for being here. Namaste.